one of the convictions undergirding everything that I do on plain spoken is the notion that words matter and speaking, plain speaking uh, matters. Uh, the Life is not just about feelings. It's about how we articulate these feelings. It's it's a big part of what makes us human. And, you know, I can even go in a very little dire- literal direction with that. With In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, of course, that concept is a lot bigger than words, but it doesn't exclude words. And, in fact, God's revealed um, Word is written down in words in the Bible. So, the Bible is the paramount, most important book for Christians to be aware of within Methodism and really within every other Christian covenant body. There are other words that need to be known in order to know how we're sharing in covenant life together. So that's the nation. That's the nature of covenants. The Global Methodist Church, of which I am an elder, is uh, getting off the ground in a convening conference next year where they will be uh, finally adopting an actual book of doctrines and discipline. And what they currently have is a transitional book of doctrines and discipline, which is governing them right now. It was adopted by the TLC, which is the primary governing body, but all of that's going to change next year at the uh, convening conference. What they're going to do at the convening conference is use what we're going to review in this series, what we have been reviewing, as a backbone that they then augment over time to reflect the nature of the covenant that we share. A lot of people coming out of the United Methodist Church hate this because they think words ruined it. The Book of Discipline in the United Methodist Church ruined it. That is the opposite of the lesson that we learned. The lesson that we learned is if we don't protect the words, everything gets ruined. So knowing what's in here is absolutely, actually super important so that we can uh, know how to protect what we've got. If we don't know what's in here, we don't know what we're supposed to protect in order to have integrity as an institution. So that's the whole point of this. That's the orientation point for this episode. This is the fourth episode. The first episode was part one, dealing with the doctrine of the GMC. Part two dealt with the social witness. Part three began this portion, which is on... um, the, the nature of the local church, the theology undergirding it, what we believe about it, how we participate in it. Last week, we ended with paragraph 316. We're in 317 now. I've already gone too long without uh, noting who it is that I've got in the studio with me. Everybody knows TJ, my producer. Say hello, TJ. Howdy, everybody. TJ is trying to get all the gear in order. He's moving around, but I think everything's all set now, and we can get right into the content. It's as set as it's going to get. Okay. So TJ is a couple days back from Mexico. He got mm. me a bottle of vanilla, which my wife was very happy about. So uh, happy to be back with uh, two, two guys just making our way through the transitional book of doctrines and discipline. We are not experts, uh, but this is just kind of a, a, a layman's response to what we encounter here. So if you've got your transitional book of doctrines and discipline you want to walk through with us, we are on page 26. We're in paragraph 317. We're still in the section dealing with the nature of the local church. We're on page 28. Did I say 27? You said 26. Okay. I don't I don't know how to count. Okay. Thank you. Page 28. All right. Uh, paragraph 317, the meaning of confirmation. Okay. This comes after the section on the baptismal vows. So baptism is entry into the body of Christ. Now confirmation is the rite that we do after a person has been baptized as an infant, but then as an adult, they're, they're coming to own their own faith. Through the rite of confirmation, we personally renew the covenant declared at our baptism, witness to God's work in our lives, affirm our commitment to Christ and His Holy Church, and receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, enabling our lifelong journey toward holiness. The apostles prayed for and laid hands on those who had been baptized. It is the duty of pastors to prepare confirmands, that's people who undergo confirmation, teaching them the basic tenets of the historic Christian faith, the history and theology of the Western Wesleyan Revival Movement, and the practical meaning of church membership in agreement with the transitional book of doctrines and discipline and approved catechism. Okay, that's all we've got on catechism, not catechism, confirmation. The theology of confirmation is is what comes out of belief in infant baptism. So uh, 
people who practice infant baptism are called pedo-baptists. People who don't are uh, would usually be called uh, believer uh, uh, believer confessional confession. It's it's slipping. Usually, I can regurgitate this pretty good. Yeah, I don't remember the exact wording. I think it's confessional. So they're, well, they're ones no, that, that believe that you right really either. can't enter into covenant with Christ Jesus until you can uh, own the faith for yourself, confess the doctrines right. as they are, and different bodies will have different doctrines, uh, doctrinal standards. Here in the Global Methodist Church, people can be baptized into church membership before they're developed enough to know what's going on, but it's God claiming them, the community of God claiming them. And then um, also disabled people that can't answer for themselves can be baptized into the church uh, as long as their caretakers are also committed. So in confirmation, the, the, the acknowledgement is that later on in life, after a person has already been baptized, they do need to take ownership of their faith. They can't just say, well, I've been baptized, so I don't need to know anything. Rather, okay, I'm an adult now, and I, I need to take... Uh, responsibility for my walk with Christ and acknowledge uh, the nature of the covenant I'm in, I'm in with Him, and so there is a a period one enters into where they are indoctrinated as a confirmand, and the elder of any given does it say it's pastors? It is the duty of pastors to prepare them, teaching them the basic tenets, history, and theology of our particular movement, and the practical meaning of church membership, in agreement with this document. All right, so TJ, you don't come out of, uh, well, you are now a, a Methodist. Your membership is is in this Methodist church, but um, how does this strike this, you this coming out of Methodist your tradition? Church. Huh? So in this global Methodist church. Oh, yeah, yeah, we did take that vote a couple weeks ago. We are now, I don't know that they have officially received this church. Oh, yeah, I guess they got to do that, don't they? Uh-huh, yeah. That but, you know, I, I think they probably will. You yeah, know? I don't see why they wouldn't, unless you're a little too... Uh, <laughs> Far right or something, I don't know. I don't know what, what just, you know, they've received a lot of crazy churches already, and crazy pastors I'm already yeah, in, yeah, so yeah. who knows why. But um, how do you think, how does this look to, like, outsider eyes for people who, were you ever confirmed? Um, so, yeah, no, confirmation is kind of a new new thing to me, because all the churches that I've been to are not as, I don't necessarily think it's a high churchy thing, but that's... Uh, a Methodist thing, and not only a Methodist thing, because they do they do confirmation in other denominations. But mm-hmm. all the churches that I've been to, um, they they didn't do that. It was just a it was more of a loose thing. This is more like structured, yeah. um, methodical. The churches you've been to, did they practice infant baptism? Um, uh, the two, the big big two that I can that I'm I would say they're uh, the main churches that I went to. Uh, Church on the Move. I don't know if they. I was that's the one I was baptized at. Um I don't think they do infant baptism there. And then Victory where I went to Bible college, they definitely No, I think they, they don't do, do infants. No, they do small children, but they don't do infants, I don't I don't believe. Okay. I don't think I've ever seen an infant there. But they're I mean, Church on the Moose, uh more Baptisty. Um yeah. and then Victory was definitely Pentecostal. Um Skirting up that word of faith line that is, yeah. Baptism is something a lot of traditions get real wonky about, and I'm not going to pretend as though Methodists have it all figured out. What I will say is, you should know why you believe what you believe, and it's not right. sufficient to just say it's what I believe. So I wanted to point everybody to, and I'm not going to do this on every uh, video in the series, but Dr. Robert A. J. Gagnon is uh, an excellent biblical scholar. I've got his Facebook pulled up here. He's published a ton of stuff on early Christian theology and practice. And starting yesterday, he made some posts about um, early Christianity, how they practiced baptism, what the Greek means. Um, this seems to have just been copied and pasted out of some stuff that he's written as a scholar. He, it turns out, is a Baptist. Uh, uh, but real interesting stuff. He had two posts. You might go over to his page. You might consider he is not a Methodist, but he has a very worthy um, perspective to to take into consideration. So if you have time to to look into this, then you know the 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 thing I'm saying is not you should agree with Gagnon. The thing I'm saying is you should be able to articulate why you believe over against other understandings of it. I think so, most of the churches that I've been to would just rebaptize you. 
Yeah, so Which rebaptism. I'm, uh, I'm kind of iffy about as it is. So so I talked to a pastor in town that I like a lot, and I was calling him out on rebaptizing. Yeah. And he said, "What are you talking about? Rebaptizing? I'm baptizing them. They weren't baptized for the before. First, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they might have like received water before, but no. This this is the real deal. Baptism. You took a short bath. Well, and that's you know, I I I I recorded a conversation with Ryan Danker that we can't put on here, but the, he and I spent a lot of time on this topic of what constitutes an authentic baptism. When is it a rebaptism? What's the problem with rebaptism?" Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that he'll let me publish that soon or, or something because it's it is a big thing. Anyway, a lot of people will say, you know, it's unbiblical to practice child baptism or believer baptism. Is not confirmation is also unbiblical. There's nothing in the Bible about a confirmation period right. at all. This is something that the church created in order to um, mark a transition from parents being responsible for their children's faith to a person being responsible for their own faith. So, and the Reformed person says, we're not responsible for our own faith. It's all an illusion. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, uh, A little more complicated than that. No, I don't know about that. (laughs) Anything else to say about confirmation before we go on? um, No, there was one thing I wanted to to, to point out. It's the approved catechism. There is an approved catechism. Did it say that in this? It says it right there at the end. It says... Oh, uh, proof catechism. Yeah. There is there is a catechism of the Global Methodist Church, but it's not listed in our doctrinal standards. Okay, but they do have... An, like, this is the catechism we're going to use, but it's not... So I don't know that there's been any official statement that, hey, use this one, okay. but it's been circulated with Global Methodist Church on the front end, and it's people who are in connection with the Global Methodist Church. Okay, so but they just haven't, like... They haven't formally adopted it for sure. some reason. Okay. Maybe they're waiting to... The convening totally, conference, yeah, I'm sure there conference. will be a move to do it. Okay. Paragraph 318 on professing members. Those wishing to become professing members of the GMC may present themselves to the pastor of any local congregation and, after any appropriate counsel, be baptized, if they have not already done so, and join by professing their faith in Jesus Christ and agreeing to the vows of discipleship. Those wishing to transfer their membership from one congregation of the GMC to another may do so by indicating such to the receiving pastor who shall send a request for the transfer of their previous congregation, to their previous congregation, sorry. uh, Persons may also be received by transfer from another denomination in which the lordship of Christ is affirmed, that's important, The pastor in charge has the authority to determine the readiness of any person to assume the vows of membership. A person deferred by the pastor may appeal that decision to the pastor parish relations committee or its equivalent in order to fulfill the mandate to, quote, watch over each other in love. That's classic Wesleyan language. Professing members of the GMC shall be encouraged to participate in a class meeting, small group setting, discipleship, or other accountability group on a regular basis as a key part of the fulfillment of their vows of membership. We'll we'll treat the class meeting thing separately, but the professing members thing, this seems concerned with process first off. Okay, who decides who gets to be a member? It's not a committee, it's the pastor. Pastor decides what they need to confess— it's not optional. They have to be baptized before they're a member of the church, if they haven't been baptized before. And then you can transfer their membership if they've been a part of a church where Christ is Lord. Problem there being Mormons will call Christ Lord, right. but they mean very different things. Yeah, and hopefully, because the pastor's doing that, they would be able to like suss that out and figure that out. Like, oh, we've got an issue here that's a little more complicated than just the Jesus is Lord thing. Um, so, Well, this is one of those things that, that links to the Bitter Medicine series that I was doing because a lot of pastors in the United Methodist Church acknowledged, brought people into membership that didn't know the doctrine, right. didn't know the history, didn't have the discipline or interest in fulfilling membership vows. And what we're looking at potentially here is a bunch of pastors in the Global Methodist Church replicating that same mistake of welcoming people into membership who you don't know, what, care about these things. What happens when you get a, a crazy, um, lukewarm pastor that just kind of like brings everybody in and then you've got the... 
UMC again. There's there's crazy lukewarm pastors. Then there's very church growth oriented pastors who, hey, True. I want to grow this church. I want to make it as easy as possible to get in. I want to look good on paper. I want to have a big bustling church. You don't have that whenever you're saying, hold up here a minute. I'm not going to let you in until you uh, convince me you're really interested. Right. So there are a lot of pastors. I, I would actually think, you know, I'm interested, anyone watching this, I'm interested in your thoughts. I'm, I'm of the mind that probably a majority of global Methodist pastors are not at all interested in exercising an exclusive situation here where they are denying people membership that are not very committed. Yeah, I think it would be, I think it's going to be like an exceptional case that uh, some GMC pastor is going to say, that, yeah, sorry, you're not going to work out here. Move on. Or, you know, hopefully it doesn't come down to that. It just comes down to, it'd be great to have you as a member. Here's the stuff that I need to make sure you know. Uh, I, I'm going to need you to sit down with me in a membership class. I'm going to need you to, to, to take the time and energy to learn this doctrine, learn this history, and I'll be happy to show, oh, you're not interested in that. Well, then maybe membership isn't for you. Maybe it's good for you to continue worshiping with us, but you know, uh, it doesn't seem to me that you'd be able to, to play a helpful role as a member if you're not willing to commit on this level. So right. that's kind of the language that I would use, but I don't think many pastors have that kind of language. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm a pessimistic, so. Yeah. Yeah, well, and especially when disaffiliation is easier and there are no financial consequences, it's just hard to freak out about, oh, we, we don't have a good membership audit going on. You know, in the United Methodist Church, it really mattered does it really matter so much in the global Methodist church when the consequences just aren't really as big? I, I think the, the yeah, pressure... Yeah, there's not the overarching, like, you're going to lose your appointment um, kind of thing, and you're going to kicked out get kicked out of the church, and, like, yeah, I don't think it's going to be as important. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. What about the class meeting portion? It doesn't say it's mandatory. It says all new members will be encouraged, encouraged. to participate in an yeah. accountable small group discipleship. Um, I mean, even if, even if it said it was, uh, mandatory, I think eventually, maybe even right off the bat, like it would be just kind of implied, I don't know who's going to enforce it kind of thing, um, other than the pastor. And if the pastor doesn't want to enforce it, they're not going to enforce it. So, well, so they, they've used this forcing language, uh, before they will be informed of the doctrine and the history this is a have-to thing, and then they just have one optional thing, which is they will be encouraged to. But, uh, I mean, we're already, I think, of the same mind. Most pastors are not even going to do the mandatory bit. Oh, yeah, no. It's just going to be... It sounds good up front. They might do it for a little while, and after a while, like, who's enforcing it kind of thing. Like, yeah, If it's not enforced, if there's not some kind of GMC police officer breathing down the necks of uh, the GMC pastors, then... Yeah, and we are decidedly anti uh, against. Kind yeah, of, yeah. What, so, what would that be? Yeah. Well, we'll see how it works out. Let's go to paragraph three nineteen. Vows of membership. In addition to taking the vows of baptism, paragraph three sixteen. We already had those that we covered in the last episode. Those wishing to become professing members of the GMC shall be asked the following questions before being received into the church. Do you believe in God the Father? Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So right there, I see it reclaiming masculine language for God. I don't think that the United Methodist um, uh, vows of membership had anything that was gendered uh, with relation to God or the Church. Yeah, that yeah, doesn't surprise me. Do you confess Jesus Christ as Savior, put your whole trust in His grace, and promise to serve Him as your Lord? That's almost word for word what the United Methodist vows say. Do Other you, than the gendered language? I don't even know. Yeah, yeah what the, it says. the part dealing with Jesus Christ as Savior, put your whole trust in his grace and promise to serve him as your Lord. That's okay. all. Well, I guess it's Jesus, so yeah, that would yeah. have to be gendered. Well, yeah, I mean, that. I don't think that, well, whatever. Do you receive and profess the Christian faith as contained in the scriptures? I don't think that's in the United Methodist Church vows. Do you promise, according to the grace given you, to keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in the same all the days of your life as a faithful member of Christ's holy church? 
okay? Will you be loyal to Christ through the name of the church that you're joining? And do all in your power to strengthen its ministries. I would have it be feminine, but whatever. Because, I mean, the if you don't know why, like, uh, biblically, there is a, a coupling of a masculine God with a feminine church, and that's the that's the symbolic beauty of uh, a lot undergirding New Testament Scripture and how we re- understand ourselves to be in relationship with God. Anyway, God is masculine, we are neuter, uh, to strengthen its ministries through your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness as Christ's representative in this world. That's language taken directly from United Methodist vows. So I think I think in the United Methodist Church, they only have three or four of these. They've added a little bit more on about scriptures, and they don't say the word submission, but it's um, to keep, not submit to, but keep God's holy will and commandments. That's not necessarily a big deal. Uh, any Anything noteworthy about these vows? No, I, I, I do like the fact that they've acted. You've got to, like repeat this in front of the congregation if you want to be a member um, because a lot of churches it's it's very like loose membership like you sign a paper here you go you're a member now so you don't have to it's nothing's not much is required of you so I appreciate it says that. they shall be asked the following questions before being received into the church so it doesn't oh you're saying it doesn't specifically say it has to be in front of the congregation I I don't think uh, no it doesn't indicate that to uh, me yeah I guess that is true Um you and I, I guess, have a buddy in this church that I ask questions in front of everybody, and then he was so embarrassed he turned away from everybody as he answered them. But he did oh, yeah. it. Yeah, he did. He did say it though. Yeah. So it's um, important. I think it's important to publicly confess Christ. No, no, yeah, no. I agree with you there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I would prefer that they do that. I'm not gonna make a big deal that it, as long as they're saying it, I guess, whether it's in front of the just the pastor, preferably the congregation, but if they're making them say it in front of the pastor, at least they're saying it. I wonder if we'll have opportunity to talk about it. So I'm of, I think, well, what I said last week is everything we do is an expression of what we believe, and everything we believe informs everything we do. If what you're doing to join the body of Christ is not something with the body of Christ, but with an individual. I mean, that just tells me that your understanding of the church is off base, because you're not entering into a relationship with the pastor. You're entering into a relationship with the people. So if you can't even talk to the people while you enter into a relationship with them, that's a dysfunctional relationship right from the beginning. It's already got it as in in, uh, the... just to become a member, you've got to have it. It says you've got to have a conversation with the pastor. The mm-hmm. It's up to the pastor. So would you rather have it? Okay, here's the church board. Dude, this is how some Southern Baptist churches do it. I don't know if you saw my interview with Jonathan Wigner, but he said any time before oh, they no, receive somebody. right there in the room. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, there's some churches. Yeah. That's the process. The pastor is just one voice among everybody. Right. So it seems to me the pastor here is supposed to be the one at the one that you have the initial conversation with, but then the conversation has to expand to the whole congregation. Otherwise, you know, the church is not the pastor. Yeah. The pastor is the gatekeeper for the church. Yes, but in, I mean, would you then want the congregation to vote yay or nay on, like, whether they're going to be in or not? I would, but that's not, think- <laughs> what's, that's not what's in here. Yeah, right. But what's, I what's in, what I would have be in here is at least... They need to profess their faith in front of everybody so that everybody can be like, well, we did. He does believe the same things as us, right. at least. You know, he's saying mean things at the board meeting, but we have the same faith that we believe in. But if it's like, well, the pastor said he said these things in the privacy of his office, so maybe right. he has this. I don't know. I haven't heard him talk about his faith. I just think the whole point, we're supposed to be witnesses. To We watch each other get baptized. It's not mm-hmm. appropriate to baptize outside of the assembled body unless it's just a very extreme instance. And then we watch each other make vows to the church. Otherwise, I just, it's weird. It's it, The word I used was dysfunctional. Anything else to say? No, I don't think so. Paragraph 320, growth in faithful discipleship. Faithful membership in the local church is essential for personal growth and for developing a deeper commitment to the will and grace of God. As members involve themselves in private and public prayer, worship, the sacraments, study, Christian action, systematic giving, and holy discipline, 
They grow in their appreciation of Christ, understanding of God at work in history and the natural order, and an understanding of themselves. This is all very—we could spend a whole hour just on all this. Faithful discipleship includes the obligation to participate in the corporate life of the congregation with fellow members of the body of Christ. A member is bound in sacred covenant to shoulder the burdens, share the risks, and celebrate the joys of fellow members. A Christian is called to speak the truth in love, always ready to confront conflict in the spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation. All right, that's all of paragraph 320. It was entitled, again, Growth in Faithful Discipleship. It begins by saying that if you're going to be a faithful member, you have to participate in the body. You can't be a member staying at home. Right. Well, it doesn't really... Okay, it says... Um, what is the specific wording? That it's essential for personal... Faithful membership in the local church. Oh, it's not saying you have to show up. You have to be a faithful member right. in the church in order to properly grow in personal uh, faith and growing in the will and grace of God. So I, th- I take that as a statement to say, actually, you, there's no lone wolf Christians. You have to belong to a church right. if you're going to grow in faith. But it doesn't specify, like, you got to show up every Sunday or... You know, it really would Wednesdays. be fun if they said, if you're not there three out of every four Sundays, you're a bad member. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just get it out right in front. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just kind of a loosey, goosey thing like the rest of it. Yeah, it's how many how many pastor. pastors are, are willing to say, look, as a as a as a member, I expect you to privately pray, mm-hmm. publicly pray, uh, be at worship all the time, participate in the sacraments. Uh, I want you to study the faith. I want you to be doing Christian, Christian actions action. in your life. I want you to give systematically. What I think it means there is proportionally and regularly. I, yeah, I assume regularly. Uh, and I want you to have a very disciplined life. I want you to grow in your appreciation of Christ. I want you to understand God at work in history and the natural order. And I want you to understand yourself rightly as a Christian. If a pastor said that on the front end for membership, how many people would even join? Right. Well, how many pastors are going to like bring that up to the person wanting to join? Like, <laughs> here, here's what's expected of you kind of thing. Uh-huh. Like, I don't even think they're going to bring that up. They might. I it's just, just going to depend on the pastor again. It is, yeah. I mean, like even me. Uh, this is. Uh, it seems to me that they constructed this document so as to be a reference point, so that when sever- somebody's coming into the GMC membership, the pastor is opening this and going, "Okay, here's the language here. Walk through this with me. How do you feel about that?" Right. Oh, the, yeah. That should be what they do for sure. Um, that'd be great. I wonder if I should do that this Sunday as we're talking about bringing people into Global Methodist membership. Do it. You think I should? I think you should. Okay. I still haven't decided. Okay. Well, I, yeah, it's, it seems, yeah, volunteers that. Um, We've got more people wanting to join? Huh? I know you said something about baptism. Oh, yeah, you okay. Yeah, there's some Sorry. people that need to get Sorry. baptized, but then I, I think I want to have everyone who wants to be a member of the GMC go through a period of catechesis to some degree. I'm still not clear well, on what I, that looks like. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to all of the members that are... St- Current are have been members for a while. Just make us all go through a class or something. That's just yeah. Uh, I've, <laughs> you you're gonna be the one that has to deal with it. So yeah, I mean, how many people are just gonna be like, uh, I've been yeah. a member of this church right. for that's, forever. That's you're gonna make me take a class yeah. to be a member again. Yeah. Well, I think it's even hard to get them to watch these videos. <laughs> so. <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 321, paragraph 321, the meaning of Holy Communion. In Holy Communion, also known as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, from the Greek word for Thanksgiving, Eucharisteo, we are invited into fellowship, koinonia. That's another Greek word. I, for some reason, we need Greek lessons. As, right yeah, now. no, it's just random that they decided to do that <laughs> in, in paragraph 321. <laughs> With Christ Jesus, who is spiritually present in the whole of the sacrament. We participate. I wonder why they stipulated in the whole of the sacrament. I'm, I'm, so in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox theology, there's a notion that you can participate in either the wine or the bread, and it's sufficient for one reason. One of, one of them was sufficient by themselves? Yeah. So I wonder if oh. them, they're saying, no, you have to have both. I don't know why. It's weird to me that you would only want like one 
Like, yeah, well, for people who struggle with alcohol. The, well, if you're doing grape juice, like, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's. I'm just saying in the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic yeah. Church, there's that, or if you're gluten intolerant, I don't know. I mean, yeah. that's just my theory. There's I don't a remember why. Um, Jesus Christ, who is spiritually present in the whole sacrament, we participate in the communion of the saints with the Church Universal. Wonder how many people understand that. And we are given a foretaste of God's eternal banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The sacrament may be offered to all who repent of sin and desire to draw near to God and lead a life of obedience to Christ. So that's making clear it's not just for baptized members, but it's anyone who repents of their sin, desires to draw near to God, and lead a life of obedience to Christ. So, yeah, how many how many people officiating are going to say, hey, wait, wait, <laughs> do you repent of your sin? Do you want to live rightly right. with Christ? Uh, so, I mean, I would like to think a lot are, I mean, you've seen me officiate, you know, and I, I try to make sure, like... Yeah, you it, say up front, you, hey, you're going to bring judgment on yourself if you're not you're in the right place with this. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of places that GMC pastors that. make sure they understand the weight of this. You know, the unfor- I grew up in a United Methodist church where it really the it felt like mid service snack time. I I went to a church um, in Bartlesville one time because I was just going around going to different churches and uh, they uh, were in the middle of worship and they're like, "Hey, if you want to have communion, it's over there at the side. Uh, just go go grab go grab it and come back and we're gonna keep on singing." And they just kept on going. Well, that's how Life Church does like, it, isn't wow. it? They just have it in the back of the sanctuary uh, for you to grab. It's been a while since I've been to a Life Church. Yeah, <sighs> people get Maybe. real funny about baptism, so they're just like, "You can do it. It's optional. It's off to the yeah. side. No big deal." And then you know, there are a lot of people who are like, "It's a huge deal. Mm-hmm. It's a huge deal. You're making the central act." Of, I mean, so for people who don't know the history, until the Protestant Reformation came, the central act of worship was the Eucharist. That was, I mean, the the priest could give a terrible homily, everybody could smell like armpits, but if you had had the sacrament of communion, you had worshipped. And then with the Protestant uh, Reformation, uh, the, uh, the, there was a f- central focus on God's Word being the primary act of worship, uh, the pulpit being the central focus, not the altar. And so that's why you have this irregular uh, Lord's Supper that is done a hundred different ways in a hundred different places. I think we've lost something in that the the altar and the way we have communion is actually super important. But and there are United Methodist churches and global Methodist churches that have made we do it every week. Uh-huh. Our identity is determined by this. But um there are a lot of communities that no. It's a nice thing that we do, but no, yeah. we we we're we're not gonna be defined by this. Let's go on. Holy Communion is normally celebrated in the midst of the congregation, physically gathered to remember and respond to God's mighty acts of salvation revealed in His Holy Scripture. Local congregations are urged to ensure regular opportunities for the congregation to commune. The elements of Holy Communion may be taken to those whose condition prevents them from being physically present. When Holy Communion cannot be offered, the love feast provides an opportunity for significant fellowship in a wide array of settings. We encourage the use of non-alcoholic wine or juice for Holy Communion. Non-alcoholic juice must be offered as an option where wine is used. Mm. So it talks about love feasts. Love feast is is uh, something that early Methodists did. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Explain that It's to also referenced in the book of Jude, whenever it's saying that there are people who've snuck in unawares who are poisoning the the church fellowship says they are a blemish on your love feasts. And so it's like the conversation around is an episkopos the same thing as a presbyteros? Is a, a bishop the same thing as an elder? Or are they different things? There are similar people who similarly argue is a love, love feast, feast the same thing as the Lord's Supper, or is it a different thing altogether? Huh. And there's not enough context clues to come to a definitive place on that. In the context of early Methodism, there were not enough priests of the Church of England to help Methodists have regular communion. And so the love feast was used as something that didn't require a priest present to ordain. It was just something that the church could do on its own, where they would have water and bread and then a a general meal around it, where they would still have the fellowship and love uh, of the community of Christ, but it was not the sacrament of communion or understood to be so. Oh, you Methodists. 
there. We we take the well. Once upon a time, we took the sacrament of communion very seriously. So, and there's, I mean, I got an email from a guy last week saying, "I love my global Methodist church. We're off to a good start, but we have this non-denominational pastor who is wanting to serve us communion, and I don't acknowledge him as accredited enough to officiate over communion. So, what do I do? Do I have the sacrament and lie, or do I?" Sit down and stay away, and potentially offend. You traditions know? of men. The traditions of men being um, that you have to have a an ordained person. Yeah, like if the GMC bishop doesn't slap a certified sticker on this guy, he can't do <laughs> communion. I think that's. I think so, it's important, and not not just anybody coming off the street can do it. Sure, I uh-huh. just that's just a the Baptisty part of me that's. Yeah, there there is a place that you can easily go to mark, like make fun of, like, uh, uh, and Jesus said you shall have an ordained person right. who has been trained in these ways, and unless he does, you know, he doesn't say that. He just yeah. says do this in remembrance of me. But then if you don't have those barriers to who can do it, then you find things get really crazy really Oh, fast. yeah, I'm not, I'm not against barriers for sure. I'm yeah. just like, where's the line at? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a good thing to think through. As long, I, I think as people make their way through this, if they're getting to, oh, people on the other side are so stupid, you're doing it wrong. You know, you have to understand that mature believers take different right. positions, and that can lead you to a place of being gracious with your fellow brothers and sisters. All right, um, we got a little bit more time. Let's go on to section four, care of members. Paragraph 322, member involvement and accountability. So we're going to keep on this uh, uh, notion of not who are members now, but what is expected. Each member is called to fulfill their vows of baptism and membership, being faithful by participating in the spiritual formation, worship, stewardship, and service opportunities each church provides. It is the responsibility of each congregation to establish and communicate clear expectations of their members who share in the partnership, fellowship, koinonia, of the gospel. Philippians 1.5 is the scripture reference there, and the responsibility of each member or partner to strive to meet those expectations. So here I'm kind of reading it saying, we're not going to define for you all the specifics of what every single member should be doing, but local churches have that prerogative, and in fact they should. They should communicate those expectations to their members, and their members should meet those expectations. Right. I don't find... I mean, the, the concern I have in the United Methodist Church, the, the mission was to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, but then there wasn't a shared understanding of what a disciple was, <clears throat> yeah. and that caused this kind of schizophrenic identity where going from church to church, you have very different identities in Christ. So they have already laid out a lot of language that I would think would be unifying, but if someone is predisposed to be contentious, I think there's still room for manufacturing uh, different identities in Christ here. But it looks like they're going to nail a lot more down. I'm acting like I haven't read this before. I read it two weeks ago, and I've forgotten all of <laughs> there's this. A, there's a lot here. I was looking to see like how far we've gotten, and it's not. We haven't gotten far at all. Well, it's a 100-page document, isn't it? Or is it 150? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's 100. We're right a quarter of the way through. 105. We're a quarter of the way through. We're doing okay. You're not happy. <laughs> It's a lot to go through. I don't, well, we I, don't, I don't know if why I'm, I'm. It's it's not that I'm. I don't know. I I'm undecided on how I feel about this. We're gonna get to the end of this series, and you're gonna be like, "Man, I'm so glad we did this. I love this book. I uh, want to read more books." <laughs> Maybe we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Point two: uh, the pastor is responsible for ensuring the members are cared for by implementing a discipleship process focused on helping members to, quote, go on to perfection, end quote, that's a Methodist phrase, by loving God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's Jesus' words directly, by loving neighbor as themselves, the same. Pastors are charged with equipping all of the members of the congregation to be in ministry by meeting people at their point of need and offering them Jesus, and the scriptural reference there is Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Uh, all I'm thinking is, well, good luck. You know, the pastor can put whatever process in place that, that he or she wants. Getting people right. to do it is a whole other thing. So, 
Um, they did. It, we we did go over what it, they determined a disciple is. Correct. That was part of. This they document. did define what okay. a disciple yeah. was. Did it didn't have benchmarks like they attend worship this often right, they give yeah. this percentage or anything yeah. but yeah it, it kind of painted a picture of an ethos that we all share point three all members of the church are called to into a loving a, a loving accountability with one another if a member neglects the fellowship membership vows however the congregation shall use every means of encouraging that member to return to an active faith and to lovingly restore them to the fellowship of the church. So they cite Jesus in Matthew 18, describing calling someone on the carpet. Each local church shall establish a grace-filled process approved by the presiding elder, that's essentially the district superintendent, uh, to restore negligent members to a full participation in the life of the church. Negligent members may be placed on an inactive role by a two-thirds vote of the church council. So this is another one of those things. It's a very similar concept to the United Methodist Church. There was a, a yearly membership audit that was supposed to be done by every church, and mm-hmm. inactive members were supposed to be targeted by the current membership and ask them to come back in. Then you could put them on a three-year roll where if they didn't come back in, they would rotate off of the membership list. This is very similar. Um, so I guess where my heart is, if they don't want to be there, I don't want them there. So do I have to chase them down? We've right. talked about this in our men's discipleship mm-hmm. group where one sided... Who is the one sheep that's... Uh, uh, he left the 99 to find the one. Who was... Uh, what was the... Well, is it is it us who is in Jesus' place seeking them out, or is it the Holy Spirit doing that? Right, way? yeah, that's the, that was a context yeah. of the conversation. Yeah, we talked about that with Van Longbonds, a local pastor, first, and then we talked about that in our men's group, um, which, of course, was not filmed. But yeah, it's um, it's this concern I have about the church seeming like a beggarly presence right. in people's lives or a needy presence, uh, whereas I, I'm of the mind that if they don't want to be here, we don't want them here. Um, so I don't know how much that comports with a GMC ethos down the line. And I could be wrong on that. Um, and I've, I remember he quoted that scripture to me. Well, okay, no, but the, that wasn't the scripture that convicted me. It was at the end of James, anyone who convinces a brother, saves a brother and convinces them to come back, has uh, covered a great many sins. It's been a while since we had this conversation. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I might be wrong. Um, uh, Point four. Oh, it was interesting to me on that one that it gets the district superintendent involved on that one. If you're going to remove people, you need to get someone from outside of the church involved. That's how formal they are. Oh, and earlier there was a citation. Yeah, just as a, a, a... Yeah, each local church shall establish a grace-filled process approved by the presiding elder to restore negligent members to full participation in the life of the church. So each district superintendent's going to create some kind of process. I think each church is going to come up with their own process, and then their presiding elder has to sign off on it. Okay. So I guess we better get on that. Yeah. I wonder how many churches have done that. <laughs> um, but uh, above it also, I didn't, I, I failed to pick on it. But if a pastor refuses to let someone join the membership, they can appeal that decision to the SPRC committee, yeah. South Parish Relations Committee. That seems really weird to me. I want to be a member of this church. Your pastor won't let me. Yeah, I'm going to go around the pastor. That could, that could definitely cause some problems. But I, I, I like that there is a. a a roundabout, just in case the you get a pastor that's just being just get rid of the pastor. If maybe, a pastor is being yeah. like that, you got a pastor problem, not uh, a well. You, yeah, if you've got if you got these, you've got a, a whole lot deeper problems than whether uh, whether or not so and so should yeah. join the church. Right. Yeah, There's it's a root a cause issue. Issues. Yeah, yeah. All right. Point four: Members placed on the inactive role may remain in that status for up to two years while every attempt is made to return them to active membership similar to UMC. Members on the inactive role are suspended from serving on church committees or voting on church matters during that time. I don't think that's the same as United Methodist Church. That's kind of nice. You put them on the inactive role and they don't get a you don't get a vote. So it's not going to be like the disaffiliation thing where they didn't clean up their roles um, and you've got random people showing up 
that have been members forever but just haven't showed yeah. up to church right. voting on whether the church can disaffiliate or not. As long as you have put them on the inactive role. Yeah, so it's still up to the pastor to get it together. and well the Or the church conference. Church conference. Yeah, that's yeah. when they have to be put on that role. So if the church conference has still not done its due diligence, I mean, it's essentially like in the United Methodist Church, it's a three-year process to get them removed. You, mm. They could only not vote after they were removed. Now it's, it's saying it's essentially a one-year process. If you just get them on the list, mm -hmm. then they can't vote. So it's not as big a difference as, as would be ideal. Yeah, it just says up to two years, so it can be less you than You could have a 10-year part. Oh, up to? Yeah, it can it be less than. Uh, well, yeah, you get to design your own process. Yeah, okay. But it can't be more than two years. Yeah, you Interesting. get three months and then you're gone. No? If, it's too short for you? Me? In my head, if... if Okay, we'll talk about it more because it does um, talk about removing members here in just a second. Okay. If an inactive member does not complete the restoration process or show evidence of desiring to return to a more active status after two years, then the charge conference with the recommendation of the pastor may remove the member by a two-thirds vote. So that's one option. Point five is another option. Upon the approval of the charge conference, congregations may require that individuals' membership be intentionally renewed on a yearly basis. In such churches, congregations who do not choose to renew their commitment may be placed on the inactive role of the church for up to two years after which the charge conference may, with the recommendation of the pastor, remove their names from the membership role by a two-thirds vote. So rather than having a yearly process where you're chasing people down, you can instead have a thing where everybody's expected to just recommit every year, and if they right. just refuse to recommit, they're automatically put on the inactive role. After two years, they're gone. I like that. Yeah, I, I'm a bigger fan of that. I mean, if 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 it were up to me, you know, if someone is just not plugged into the life of the church anymore after just one or two months, we just take them off of it. There's like an active membership role of just people who are around all the time. Uh -huh that the pastor or a small committee assesses. And when someone just hasn't been around for a while, you just take them off the active membership. I think that's all that's really required. But that can get vindictive and petty. But once again, if you have a pastor who's vindictive and petty, they need to get out of there anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, as long as like you called them, say, hey, what's up? Is there anything going on? Why aren't you showing up to church? We were, you know, we missed you at church. What's is there anything going on? Can we how can we Well, and this was the other thing about this. They put that on the pastor. It seems clear to me in reading the New Testament there's a distinction between the role of the elder and the deacon. To have the elder responsible for that is strange to me, after understanding the different roles between elder and deacon. But to, to have people in a diaconal role in the local church, uh, chasing people down, connecting with them, I think is essential. But If have, your church has ordained deacons. Well, even unordained. I mean, I... I I, I mean, we don't have any ordained deacons. I don't. I don't. Think. No, I. I don't care about ordaining. Uh, to, to imagine someone needs to be ordained in order well, to serve the household of God is strange. Right, to me. but whenever we're talking about deacon, uh, the GMC does have. You have in order to be a deacon, you have to be ordained. Right, it's not just like. So would we get in trouble if we started our own like local order of deacons? I don't and, know. <laughs> I mean, I kind of don't think so. Like, maybe we would have to call them something else, but functionally, what deacons do is they serve the members of the household sure. of God. And so I can't imagine we get in trouble if we had five men and five women that have just said, we're going to serve this household of God right here. In fact, I don't think... Well, I think churches often are dysfunctional because they just everything goes to the pastor, and the pastor right. can't do all the things, yeah. and you don't have this notion of different responsibilities among different people, or they're all just paid positions. And yeah, or, they're, or their deacons are just like money-collecting boys that go up and down the aisle, which I feel like is what most of them end up being. Or like in the Southern Baptist tradition, deacons are, for all intents and purposes, a board of elders. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, the different tribes do different things with the words, but for me it's about function. You need people in the body that are responsible for proclaiming and defending the doctrine and discipline of the church, and you need people who serve the church. And it's okay that there's some overlap there, but to put it all on one person seems really silly to me. It's just yeah, not it's, I mean, it's a recipe for dysfunction for sure. Yeah. So Too much. Yeah. Spread it out. Paragraph 323, transfer from other denominations. A member in good standing in any Christian denomination who has been baptized— and who desires to unite with the GMC, 
shall be received as either a baptized or a professing member. Such a person may be received as a baptized member by notification of transfer from that person's former church or some certification of Christian baptism, and as a professing member upon taking vows declaring the Christian faith. So see paragraphs 311, 318, and 319. Invalid Christian baptism, those are two different words, invalid Christian baptism, water is administered in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by an authorized person. The pastor will report to the sending church of the date of reception of such a member. It is, a rec- it is recommended that the instruction in the faith, work, and polity of the church be provided for all such persons. Persons received from churches that do not issue letters of transfer or recommendation shall be listed as, quote, received from other denominations. Okay, so there is a formal process that a lot of mainline denominations had of uh, membership transfer process, but a lot of them don't even do that now. A lot of United Methodist churches don't do that now. GMC is saying you can do that, but then there's other ways where you, you don't have to. The The one thing it gets explicit about here is what it takes for it to be considered a baptism. You have to have mm-hmm. the triune name of God announced, and it has to be an authorized person who's done that. Yeah, that would be... <clears throat> that would be my uh, criticism. What is an authorized person? You don't define an authorized person there. Is that, that the that's got to be intentionally the... very vague. Yeah. So, I mean. The other thing is there was a pastor here in town who baptized five youth I saw on social media. Mm-hmm. He baptized each one just in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, no Father, no Holy not. Spirit. And I said, why did you do that? He said, I didn't even realize. I, I didn't think about it. I just did it. You know, so the one that I'm thinking of, probably I'm yeah. not psychic. Well, I didn't know that you uh, confronted him about it. Yeah, I said, well, it wasn't nasty. I was just sure, like, what, yeah. what's a thought here? And he just said there was no thought. But here, according <laughs> to this language, well, I don't know. I mean, the, the guy's a true believer. I don't, I don't. I'm not going to cast aspersions at his baptism, but here, this would uh, just right. saying, hey, man, if if you're only doing it in the name of Jesus, you are not giving them full Christian baptism. It don't count. That's just I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm kind of on the side of the, the the book of discipline on this one. Yeah, yeah. Because Jesus is quite explicit at the end of Matthew. Yeah, I, I mean it's an important thing. Do it right. Don't just go into it not thinking about it. Like you better you better think about this. <laughs> I don't know. And then authorized person. I'm. I I, I kind of like the authorized person language um, because if it's just the pastor, that's. That's the thing with communion for me. It's like, uh, it's just cringy to me. Okay. I think, again, there should be limits. Where's the line at? Yeah. And I think they're drawing it like way too, way too far. Deacons, cool with that. Like, I mean, elders, people. Yeah, that have within been the Roman Catholic Church, church. I learned a couple of years ago that any member of the Roman Catholic Church can baptize anybody if mm-hmm. it's like a life or death situation and they might die. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. I think that's cool. I, I think, like, I, I, when it's hard, fast rules, you must do it this way, you know, I get kind of turned off. But when it's like, here's the ideal, mm-hmm. here's how it fits with our theology best. But look, if it needs to happen another way, it can. Just use common sense. I would like if they wrote that out like that. Here's here's the ideal way. But yeah. And if you're, if you're repeatedly shirking the ideal way, we need to have a conversation. Right. But if you're trying to make it happen and real life happens and things get messy, that's life, right. you know. Do your best. We love you. Don't screw it up or you'll go to hell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Paragraph 324. Affiliate and associate membership. A professing member of the GMC, of an affiliated autonomous Methodist or United Church, or of a Methodist church that has a concordat agreement with the GMC, who resides for any... Sorry, I should not do that voice. For an extended period in a city or community at a distance from the member's home church may on request be enrolled as an affiliate member of a GMC church located in the vicinity of the person's temporary residence. The home pastor shall be notified notified of the affiliate membership. Such membership shall entitle the person to the fellowship of that church, to its pastoral care and oversight, and to participate in its activities. I think that sentence is weird. Local churches may decide whether affiliate members may serve on the local church leadership, including the holding of offices. Affiliate members may not serve as lay member to the annual conference. Affiliate members shall be counted and reported as professing member of the home church only. 
a member of another denomination may become an associate member under the same conditions. This relationship may be terminated at the discretion of the church in which the affiliate or associate membership is held whenever the affiliate or associate member shall move from the vicinity of the church in which the affiliate or associate membership is held. So this is basically, that's the end of the paragraph if you're listening. What do you do with people who are members of one church, they don't want to give up their membership of that church, but they but move they to another place else. temporarily, they want to participate in a body there. Can they be officially recognized in that body in any way? It's saying, yeah, by an affiliate or associate membership. It gives them limited access to the rights and responsibilities of that community. Right. It's okay. It's weird. But whatever. Well, it, it seems kind of like a situations. nothing burger because like, you don't have to be a member to be entitled to have fellowship at a church, have pastoral care, participate in its activities. Like most churches yeah. are falling all over themselves to right. <laughs> come. You don't have to be a member to do that. You know, yeah. so it's just like, yeah, you can be an affiliate member and you're entitled to these things that they right. hand out like candy right, to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so you just walked in, you'll get these, but you right. can be an a, a, a associate member of our church. And then traditions like the Church of God, Anderson, look at this and just go, y'all are so silly. Membership is not a biblical concept. <laughs> y'all are being so formal about this thing. You're formal about confirmation. Confirmation isn't in the Bible. You're formal about membership. Membership isn't in the Bible. And my retort is, y'all are formal about baby dedication, and that's not in the Bible. Right. <laughs> so what a wonderful time of ecumenical dialogue we're in. Anything else to say before we go on? No, we should probably finish this paragraph because we're about to hit an hour, so that'll put us on page 31 next time. Let's oh shucks. Let's 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 go through the next two paragraphs quickly. If we can. Let's do it. Paragraph 325, the constituency role. A constituency role shall be maintained in each congregation comprising four categories of persons. One, unbaptized infants, that's otherwise known as a cradle role. Two, individuals over the age of 18 who have not indicated a desire to become professing members, including, including the spouses and adult children of professing members, but who are those for whom the local church has a pastoral responsibility. That's an interesting concept. Point three, uh, persons who have attended worship more than twice or participated more than twice in the ministries of the church during the previous 12 calendar months—these are potential members— and four, persons who, though unlikely to join the church due to distance or other faith commitments, nevertheless come under the pastoral care of the congregation and are recognized as part of its wider community, or otherwise known as friends of the church. The constituency role shall be reviewed and audited annually. This is a shall be. Shall be. So that means all four of these categories should be enumerated and reviewed every year. By church leadership. I think it's good. I'm I'm all for lists and categories and you are now officially responsible for that in this church. Let's start. Sounds great. That's awesome. If you will do if it. If Sarah Beth doesn't want to do it, I'll do it. Awesome. I did not into that's the most wonderful news I've had all day. <laughs> that's wonderful. You are now responsible for the constituency oh, role. Sounds great. Oh, that's perfect, dude. Thank you. With <laughs> I did not see that coming at all. That's wonderful. Okay, last paragraph. 326. It's just like the historical thing to me. I like just it sounds cool. I like it. I like Who the, are all the people that are tangentially connected? Yeah. All right. Non-local church settings, paragraph 326. Duly appointed clergy of the GMC while serving as a chaplain of any organization, institution, or military unit, as an extension minister, or as a campus minister, or while otherwise present where a local church is not available may receive a person into the membership of the GMC under the conditions of paragraph 322, where possible, I think that's the vows, isn't it? 322. Um. Oh, I skipped it. Oh, okay, there were five, there were five stipulations that we all covered. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, membership involvement and accountability, 322. Okay, yeah, that was just right up there. Um, where possible, before the sacrament of baptism or vows of profession of faith are administered, such appointed minister shall consult with the pastor of the local church, should one be nearby, on the choice of the person concerned. Upon agreement by the pastor, a statement verifying that such sacrament was administered or that such vows were made shall be issued. The baptized or professing member 
may use the statement to join a local church. And so they're acting as though there's been language along the way that indicates that a person, as long as they've been initiated into church membership at one church, is an all. It seems to me that like they're just imagining it's a perfunctory. Okay, I'm going to this church now. My membership transfers. I haven't seen language saying a pastor can determine if they want to transfer somebody's membership into their own church. I don't know. My eye glossed over at that paragraph. It's kind of hard. Okay, what do you do? with these people that are ordained by the denomination, but they're not serving in a local church. They're a chaplain, they're resp- they're, uh, they're serving in a school, they're serving in a jail, whatever. Do we have chaplains yet? They're, yeah, we do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have chaplains. They're in the armed services, they're in a fire station. You know, They're dealing with people that are around other local churches, but their primary relationship is with the chaplain and not with the local body in the church. Uh. So it's it's saying you can bring them into membership, you can officiate sacraments over them, and then, yeah, it's great to connect them with the local church, but you don't have to. Yeah, it's weird. Why would you not want to? Yeah, there are a lot of people... So I, I, was, I served as volunteer firefighter for a long time, and there were a lot of people who would talk about Jesus with me, right. who liked me, they felt holy things when they were around me, but they were not going to come to church... I might convince them to get baptized. I might convince them to to have communion, but they were not going to come to church. Mm. And so the question is like how strict are you going to be? Can you uh, and so here it's saying, okay, you can bring them into membership. You can give them the sacraments. They don't have to be part of the church. You should try and help them in that direction maybe, but it's not necessary. That's what I got from this. I could have read it wrong. I'm sure I'm going to hear about it in the comments if I read it wrong. But it seems to be validating that a chaplaincy ministry position is okay, independent from a local church. That's my problem with chaplaincy. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I have such a high ecclesiology. Well, and it's weird because here it says, in order to grow as a disciple, you have to be a member of a local church. It said that up above, but then it makes room for this constituency that's outside of the local church. Yeah, I guess what if they're like on a military base and they're not? Then there's not a GMC church around anywhere. Like what? See, I don't know what's to... So if you have three guys that confess Christ and they want to observe the doctrine and discipline of the GMC, why not constitute a church right there? What's to Well, yeah, I guess if you've already got a pastor, why don't you just have like a loose like group? Yeah. Call it a church. You well, even if you don't building. have a pastor, like I, I guess... Well, I mean, the chaplain would be the pastor in that situation. Yeah. I'm just... Yeah, what, what, there, there's so much acrimony right now about planting churches in my, in my head, like come together... Confess the common doctrine. Let the GMC know you're now a GMC church. I'm sure it doesn't work that way. But in my head, it should work that way. And then you're just in connection with the denomination. If you get big enough, they'll send you ordained clergy. But until then, you just have small groups and practice discipleship. Um, it just seems so weird to me that that like you have to have all these T's crossed and I's dotted before you can even consider calling yourself a local church when it's clear like that obviously wasn't the case in the early church, that people got together under the name and banner of Christ Jesus. They did the very best that they could. They trusted the Holy Spirit gave what was lacking in the meantime. So I don't know. I I get kind of frustrated with... I mean, I love the order. I love the doctrine. I mean, I love that we can do that, that they've spelled it all out, and it's not one of these just feel-good religions, you know? Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I to imagine that there's someone that we're making room for being a global Methodist, but they can do so outside of the context of the local church. Just seems really weird to me. So, and I, I got nothing against chaplains. I, God bless you guys. But I just think there should be more of an emphasis on the local church for discipleship. So I will, yeah, if people listen to this, we're going to get an earful about how that's just not realistic. All right. Well, that's kind of a weird note to end on. Any any yeah. closing thoughts, TJ? Um, we've got two more sections, um, and then it's going to go to section five membership. Two more paragraphs. Yeah, yeah. Two more paragraphs. You just want to finish those. We're okay. at, we're at a minute and a, or an hour and five minutes ish. So, let's paragraph three twenty seven. Outside of congregational settings, any candidate for church membership who, for good reason, I underlined for good reason, is unable to appear before the congregation may at the discretion of the pastor, be received elsewhere in accordance with the rituals of our church. In any such case, lay members should be present to represent the congregation. Names of such persons shall be placed on the church roll 
an announcement of their reception shall be made to the congregation. So I wish they were a little more specific here. Different For good reason can mean a lot of things to a lot right. of people, but if you're visiting someone homebound who literally cannot get out of the house, but your church has been ministering to them and they love the people of the church, yeah, receive them into membership. Mm. Do your best to live stream the worship to them. B- build them into the life and work of the church. That makes sense. But it's just like someone who works at night and they're sleeping at the time you get together and, oh, shucks, I can't. No, I wouldn't say that's a good reason. You know, if it's someone who just, I'm a night owl, I just can't get up, you know. Guess it'll be up to the pastor. Wake up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last paragraph, 328. Transfer from discontinued local churches. If a local church is discontinued, the presiding elder or district superintendent shall transfer its members to another GMC or to such other churches as the members may select. Pretty straightforward. Seems perfunctory. Fine. Whatever. I'm not sure it needed to be written, (laughs) but whatever. We've covered all the bases. Yeah. Or if there are other bases, I don't want to know about them. All right. Next week, we're going to pick up on Section 5, Membership Records and Reports. Uh, Everybody is going to take some Adderall so we can stay awake. Yeah. That's a bad joke. Do not take Adderall. (laughs) Um, we might, ju- well, I'm not going to say anything. All right, TJ, anything else to be said before we close this one? I don't think so. Okay. Um, if you enjoyed this, if you, en- if you enjoyed it, Hey, we talked some good theology. We had some good banter back and forth, buddy. Okay. If you enjoyed Fair. this, seriously, send it around. It's important for global Methodist people to know what the covenant is. Um, and then hopefully if there's stuff in here that, that everybody does not like, we can change it at the uh, convening conference next year. Um, but I don't know. I, I, the reality is you talk through just about anything, you're going to get to something uh, uh, meaningful. So we talked right. about baptism, membership, ecclesiology. I mean, these are core issues for doing life together, so not wasted time. Uh, I'm, I'm just so happy for you. You got to spend this time this way. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week. Bye.